What do you love? It is, in my estimation, the question. It's the first, last, and most fundamental question, really, of the Christian life, particularly of being a disciple. To be human is to have a heart. Let me say it to you this way. You can't not love. So the question tonight is not whether you will love something ultimate, but what is it that you will love ultimate? And as one author I read said, you are what you love. And those are five words that I would ask you to, after tonight and throughout the week, just think about them, say it to yourself often, meditate on what it means biblically. You are what you love. I think that it would be easy to accept and agree with this, that what defines a person more than anything else in life is what they love. So let me give you on, in that vein what a definition of sin might be. Sin is ultimately a lack of love for God and others. The essence of sin, then, is a disordered love. Augustine, which I have a book, um, and I've handed it out to numerous people. Little red book it is beautiful. Uh, so many wonderful things in it. But in that book, he talks about what he calls in Latin "ordos amaras," which is in English the order of love. Um, he says this: a well-ordered love is what is virtue, and a disordered love is what he would call vice. He goes on to say that discipleship, then, is aligning your loves and your longings with Jesus' loves and longings. So let me tell you, how does that work practically? Well, you came to church tonight, and you did it because it's what you wanted to do. You could have wanted more to stay home and watch the NFL game, and perhaps the Lions beat the Eagles. I I doubt that's going to happen if it even has it already. But you made a choice tonight, and what won out in you sitting here instead of sitting at home in front of your TV was what you loved, what your longings, your desires were. See, tomorrow morning, you may be tired today, and you're going to get up, and you're going to get a shower, and you're going to get dressed, and you're going to go to your job. You know why? Because you have a desire to get a paycheck. You have a desire to support your family and take care of your wife and your kids and vice versa. So you're going to do that. And ladies, you're going to do the same thing. Why? Because you love your family. And you did it because it is what you love. It's what you want to do. But as you can imagine, we all have a problem. And the problem is, is that we don't have a well-ordered love all the time. In fact, we too often love less important things more. So if you stayed home and watched the football game... See, that would be a problem. Why? Because it would be a sign of a disordered love. You love football and you love it more than being in the people, with people of God in God's presence. But it also goes the other way. We love more important things less. And so we would rather do certain things than take the time and carve it out of our schedule to read the Bible. We really don't take the time to get on our knees and take prayer seriously. We haven't really planned to be witnesses to other people. Why? Because the most important things are less important to us. And what I would tell you tonight, if you think long and hard about it, and think long enough about it, the wrong prioritization of the loves in our lives creates all kinds of sin which breeds unhappiness. 
And if you've ever experienced a disordered love, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Jesus gives us, in the most clearest and simple form, as a framework for our comments about money tonight, he talks about a well-ordered love when he was asked by the lawyer, what, are, what is the great commandment? It was a very common rabbinical question that was asked to all kind of rabbis in Jesus' day. They wanted to know what the singular most important commandment out of 613 in the Old Testament really was. And Jesus says... It's about having a well-ordered love because he says, here's the first most important commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So he said, it's the first one because there's an order to it. So he says, the most important thing you can do in life, the first importance, is to love God supremely with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, but there is another order, there's a second one, and all the other ones fit under that. And that is to love others or your neighbor as you love yourself. So love what is first, first. And love what is second, second. Augustine calls this, a, I love this phrase, I think about it a lot, a conscious preference for God. My kids will vouch for me one of the things, and I still tell them to this day, and they probably are already tired of it quite a bit, I would say all of your choices communicate about God. Everything that you do, the small things that you do, the things that no one's looking, when you're tired and you, want to come, you don't want to come to church, but you do it anyways. And when you think you have to give this much and you don't know if you have it, you sacrifice. And the way that you do your work and how faithful you are and how pure you are and the holiness standards that you hold, all of those things demonstrate that you have a conscious preference for God. Not because it's tradition, not because I was told this, not because I'm living off someone else's principles, but I have a conscious preference for God. Augustine says, again, we should love God gratis, which means for free. And he has this whole ordeal that he writes about not loving God because he gives you things, but loving God because he is God. It's easy, would you not agree? It is easy to want things from God, but not to want God himself. Imagine this scenario. There's a couple that's been dating for a long time, and they really, really care about one another, and they love one another. And of course, you know, on the girl end of the things especially, um, she's hoping that that's going to be a marriage proposal soon, and of course that day comes and her fiancé-to-be sets up the whole arrangement, has all these really cool things that he knows that she'll love, and at the end of a great evening of all those things, he gets down on his knees, as many do, and he asks so-and-so, will you marry me? Wow. She pulls out the box and inside is this ring, and this is not just any ring, this is a two-carat diamond ring, and not one you get out of the Cracker Jack box. This is like pure, almost flawless. I mean, you're talking probably ten dollars and she puts it on. I mean, it's her whole face glazes over, and her eyes are glassy because you're looking at this thing, and you're going, that's incredible. And she is so enamored with that. And so they sit down after he puts the ring on her finger, and he goes, well, now that we're engaged, let's talk about a wedding date. And she turns to him and surprises him and says, you know, I, I really don't think that will be necessary. 
Because, because I think this is enough. And you would go, come on, Pastor Walker, that would never happen. That would never. She can't say that the ring is enough, right? Why? Because it's not the ring she should be in love with, not the gift that he gave her, but what she's supposed to say. Oh, the ring's nothing compared to my love for you. But you know, in our lives as Christians, we get enamored with all the gifts that God gives us, Augustine says. All the houses and the cars and the jobs and the bank accounts, and the clothes, and all the things, and we get so much involved in them that we say, oh God, we would never say this, but God, don't worry about that. These things, you've, this is enough for me. This is enough for me. And God says, but what about me? What about our love replacement? There should not be, there should never be anything that is preferable to God. And every day, can I say to you, you and I, in small ways and large ways, we have opportunities to demonstrate the infinite worth of God by the choices that we make, including our stewardship and how we use our money. Augustine, again, great quote. I've memorized it. It is one you should put in your mind and keep repeating it. He loves thee too little, who loves anything with thee that he loves not for your sake. In other words, you don't love God rightly if there's anything else in your life that you don't love because of him, not, in, not be, be, you know, other than him, but because of him, he says. And so here's a phrase that from Augustine I got, and I've tried to work on this my whole life, and that is this, to love God supremely and everything else proportionately. Proportionately. And can I tell you, it's the most difficult part of the sentence to love everything else proportionately, to love God supremely and my children and grandchildren proportionately, to love my wife proportionately, to tell her that I love you, but I don't love you as much as I love God is one of the most romantic things I could ever say to her. And I've written it on cards over time. And, and to love her and to say, I love this and I love this, but I don't love anything proportionately. And see, once you perfect that or work at perfecting that, that is what Augustine would say is a well-ordered love. And then he reminds us, listen, he reminds us with this phrase. Listen to this. It'll rock your world if you think about it long enough. He says, remember, Adam didn't sin by loving something evil, but he abandoned something better. You know what our problem is with having a disordered love? It's not so much that we love horrible, awful things. It's that we love things that we think are better, and we love them too much. So we don't discipline our children, and we don't tell them what they need to hear, because we think that's love when it's not. And we aren't willing to speak the truth into people's lives that we love. Why? Because we think that that's love when it's not. And so we value acceptance and people-pleasing and all that goes with it. And our entire lives are a struggle and a battle, whether you realize it or not, to have a well-ordered love. To love our family more than our jobs. To love God more than our families. To love purity more than our pleasures. To love pleasing God more than loving people. And to love him supremely and everything else proportionately as a lifelong task. The functioning cause, in my estimation, of our sin and our unhappiness is that our loves are out of order. 
We don't love first things first. We love sleep too much. We love getting up later too much. And we're not willing to make our loves his loves. We want God to bend his to be more like ours. So we love to eat disproportionately guilty, even though it hurts our health. Why? Because we love it too much. We love everything to be just right in our lives, and so we classify ourselves as perfectionists. And we love being everything being just right disproportionately, not because we can't love it, but because we love it too much, and then we become control freaks when people upset the order. We love acceptance from others disproportionately, and so we become anxious and fearful and even at times depressed because we become people-pleasers instead of God-pleasers. And we love success disproportionately because we compromise our ethics and our convictions in order to get it and then to hold on to it. Because why? Because we love it too much instead of loving God supremely and it proportionally. Would you not agree, love is anything but inevitable? It's not inevitable that we will love God first. It is not inevitable that we will give him the 10% and more that he deserves. So a disordered love, as I have found, will always result in a disordered life. So I want to take that framework of a well-ordered or a disordered love, and I want to take it tonight and apply it to giving What does it look like if you have a disordered love of money? You know, if you've read the books on the seven deadly sins that you'll know avarice, or we wouldn't say it that way today, we would say greed is one of the seven deadly sins, and it means to crave, it means to desire something, and obviously in this case, money or material gain. You, you've been, probably watched enough television to remember the commercial. I, don't, I think it still goes on. Remember that commercial, What is in Your Wallet?, Um, It's interesting, the world asks that, but the Bible's asking what is in your heart. And unfortunately, I thought about it, I thought too many times we'd have to say our wallet is in our heart. (laughs) And and that would be true of most people in the world. That's why the commercial is a success. Um, We suffer from, as another author I read this week, from a disease called affluenza. And that is we're addicted to being, having too much money and too much stuff. You're going to die when you hear this. I asked my wife today and she was blown away by it. Total U.S. consumer debt just in America, not out in the world, just in our country, just the debt of American citizens on the things that they consume and buy. This year in 2022 went over the mark of $16 trillion, which is close to the national debt. Now, avarice is not just about money and stuff. So when I'm talking tonight, don't just think, I don't have any money, so I'm free of this problem. Because it's about what money gives you, self-esteem, security, status, power. In fact, too many people, perhaps some of us, we measure our self-worth by our net worth. And our great wealth is only an indication of our great egos too often, as David Noggle says. So let me ask you tonight and answer it. We're going to do a Bible study, three passages, very unique to the New Testament, and I'll show you in a minute. But I want to ask you to, as we talk about these three texts and the time we have left, I want you to ask the question, what is in your heart? 
Three times, and only three to my knowledge, is the little one-word phrase used, money lovers. It is a Greek compound word that actually, if you read it literally, is silver lovers, because that would have been their currency or their money back in the day. But it's translated, and rightly so in our text, money lovers. The first one, if you'll turn there, is 1 Timothy chapter 6. As you're turning there, I want you to know the context is about Paul is writing Timothy in the ministry. He's combating false teachers and some of the things that they say that are contrary to the word of God. And one of them is that they have a wrong view of money. We would say in this sermon, they have a disordered love of money. They think that godliness, in other words, using the ministry, traveling around, going to churches is a means of gain. And Paul says that that is wrong. Godliness is not a means of gain. In fact, we should be those people, he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content, which is a biblical verse for the study of minimalism, if you ever want to take a look at that. But those who desire to be rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men. So let me just put it blank, point blank to you. Money lovers are in incredible danger. It's not a joke. To have a wrong view of money, to not have a, have a disordered love of money is dangerous, not only in this life, but for eternal life. And I'm going to show you in more explicit detail that in our next text. Verse 10, our text in particular, is for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds. And people have strayed from the faith. They have wandered away from it. They have pierced themselves through with many sufferings and sorrows, the Bible says, because of the love of money. I would tell you this tonight. If you want to know a way to measure whether you are a money lover or not, the first sign of being a money lover is discontentment. You're never content. You have to have more. The next biggest thing, isn't that Samsung? The next big thing. You have to have the next big thing, the next big computer, the next nicest car. You have to upgrade your house. You have to have a newer this, newer that, more of this. Go here, bigger vacations, bigger, better, and all the, ex- all the other things that go with it. But you're never content, never happy, never satisfied. More and more and more instead of giving away more and more and more. You know I love the Lord of the Rings. Gollum is one of the characters in there. If you know anything about him, he's a hobbit. And in the book, Tolkien describes hobbits as pleasant sort of folk, good and natural. And if you know anything about Gollum, he wasn't always Gollum. His original name was Trahard, and then they anglicized it, and they called him Schmeagol. And if you saw him beforehand, you'd think he looked like your average normal hobbit. But... No, only a small section of the movie has a little bit about his previous life. And what you see him as is, I wrote it down, he has completely altered his appearance. He is small, hunched over, wiry, little stringy hair, bulgy eyes. He looks monstrous. I mean, he's hideous. I don't know how they pulled that one off in the movie. But he doesn't look anything like he did before. And the reason is, Why? Because Gollum had a disordered love, did he not? He called it my precious. Um, It overtook him. 
it completely disfigured him. Um, as verse 9 says, in verse 10, it was, a, it was a trap. It was a snare for him, and it overcame him. And remember the verse that says, it plunged him, it plunges people and drowns them in ruin and destruction? You know what happened to Gollum? He fights Frodo at the mouth or the edge of the fire, river of fire at the very end, and he bites, b- bites Frodo's finger off to get the ring. He gets the ring, and he doesn't really care if he's attacked by Frodo. He has it. And eventually, they fight each other. He falls over the edge, and he's falling to his death in a river of fire, but he has the ring in his hand. And the very last words of his life as he hits the fire and disintegrates is, my precious. I mean, that's all he cared about. It overtook him. It was everything. I mean, his disordered love was an extreme example. He loved that ring. Would you not say tonight, because I examined my heart this week, don't you think there's at least a little golem in all of us? Maybe a lot of golem. I mean, we have our own precious, don't we? So for some of us, it's not the ring. It's the car. It's the vacation. It's the clothes. It's the jewelry. It's the place where we live. It's the job I have. It's the money I have in the bank. And those are only the external things. Alan Jackson, which I wouldn't suggest that you listen to, but he's a, co- a country western singer. He has a song, and here's the, the, the title. Everything I love is killing me. It's true, isn't it? If you're not careful, Augustine says love, but be careful what you love. And let me tell you this. In your Christian life, has it ever been true that everything you love is killing you? So here's what the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all evil. Can I tell you, if you're going to ever give God the money that he's asked for and deserves and have your heart in it, You have to root out your love of money. Root it out because you know as well as I do, root bears fruit, always. And love of money is so insidious and it gets down deep in your soul and begins to cover everything. Everything begins about your job. It's centered around the hours you have to have, the money you have, and the savings you're doing, and the projects you're re- reaching, so we can have the new furniture. And we can do, and so, see, if you're not careful, it is so much part of your life, so much revolves, everything revolves around it, and you can't serve anymore, and you can't make certain services because you have to do this, and you have to do that. See, here's what he says, beware, because when you love money with a disordered love, it is a very dangerous trap and snare, and it can plunge you into certain death. Luke 16, then, if you'll turn there. You know this passage, and I'm not going to read it all, but in Luke 16, 19 through 31, is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But have you ever considered the context? Because the parable Jesus tells, although it's noted for being about hell, and it does have that in it, is not about hell. Not primarily. It's about a disordered love of money. In the context preceding that, Jesus is talking about money. And in the text it says, verse 13, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one... Now watch, because this is about a love issue, the love of money. And so he tells the religious leaders, the people that were coming to church, the people everyone looked up to, the people who thought everyone thought had it together... 
No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why? Because you either will love him or you won't love him. You'll either have a well-ordered love or a disordered love. And then he tells them the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But why? Because look at the next verse, 14. Second use of our term. Now, the Pharisees were money lovers. See that? That's why he said what goes before, and that's why he's going to say what goes afterwards. And so he starts out the parable in verse 19, there was a rich man. Now, your idea is, which would have been a strong rebuke publicly, he he wants you to think the rich man is the Pharisee, the religious guy. Because back in his day, when you had money, it was a sign of God's blessing, so they said. So if you were rich, it also meant that you were righteous. And Jesus wants to kibosh that idea. And so he says there's a rich man. Please watch the contrasts. This rich man has all the trappings of luxury. He's got nice clothing, purple and fine linen. He has great amounts of food. He feasts sumptuously every day. His housing is superlative because he lives in a gated community. And he has a table that could feed people even if it was just the crumbs that fell from it. Now, in this parable... It's the only one of all the stories that we know of that Jesus told, the only one that has a character in the parable that actually has a name. The poor man is Lazarus. In Hebrew, that would be the term Eleazar, and it means God is my help. And you'll see when you look at Lazarus' life in comparison to the rich man, you'll know that why he needed God and trusted God and has life centered in God. But the rich man that everybody would have wanted to emulate and have his life, has no name. And I asked myself, why does Lazarus get named, but the rich man doesn't? And I would say this, and I can't prove it. But because the rich man's name was his wealth, it was his identity. And his money and living for it and being a money lover was, listen, not just something he did. It was who he was. You know how I know that's true? Because this is not a story about rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not what this is about. This is about what you love. Did you notice in the description of the poor man, which is completely opposite of the rich man in every possible way, his clothes are such that the dogs can lick his skin, which means he has holes in it. He has no food and he just wants crumbs because that would be enough for him. And he obviously has no money because he can't pay for anything or help himself. But he does desire things. He desires crumbs from the rich man's table. He desires to be fed. But the rich man, you know what he desires? Not anything that would do, have any help for Lazarus. Not at all. See, he desires money supremely. Lazarus loves and desires God supremely. How do you know that, Pastor Walker? Because the rich man ends in hell and the other guy lives in heaven. And what their desires were and what they loved was what they truly were. Did you notice in the text, the rich man does not abuse, he does not brutally treat Lazarus or do anything wrong to him. You know what he does? He just doesn't love him. Jesus said in Matthew 25, which should stun us, 
that on the day of judgment there will be people who are on his left that are goats and on his right who are sheep. And the difference between them is not some orthodox creed or belief that they say that they have, although I'm sure that's intact. But he says, when I was in prison, you came and visited me, and I was naked, you clothed me, and I didn't have a house, and you took me in. And you know what he wants to say? Here's the difference between goats and sheep. Heaven and hell is in what you love. What you use your money and resources for. And Lazarus was one who situated and centered his desires on God. But the rich man was a money lover. Can I tell you, look in hell at the rich man because he didn't change one iota. You would think he went to hell and he would say, oh, I should have treated Lazarus so much differently. I should have loved him differently. I had so much money. Why didn't I give it away and use it for people? He doesn't say any of those things. But you know what he's doing in hell? Exactly the same thing he did when he was in life, ordering Lazarus around. Send Lazarus. So he can serve me, even if it's just a little teeny bit of water off the tip of his finger. See, go get him and have him bring it to me. (laughs) He's still barking orders. Abraham argues with him theologically that he can't come to him, and the rich man argues with him. Why? Because I think that's what he was doing his whole life. He was used to having the say. He was used to being rich, and because money, rich people, read Proverbs, speak rough. That's what he was in life, and that's what he is in death. Why? Because he never really changed, because he never had God as the love that was supreme in the affections of his heart. Money lovers, it's dangerous. And the last one, perhaps most of all, is 2 Timothy chapter 3. The third use of that little word, money lovers, is in the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, again to Timothy probably handing the reins of his ministry over to him to take his place, to further and keep the gospel going. And he tells them what he is in for, what's going to be ahead down the road, what are people and humanity and society going to be like. And can I tell you, please listen to this part because we live in this day. But know that in the last days, New King James says, perilous times, ESV, I think, says difficult times. It's translated in other places hard, aggressive, and even violent times. And I want you to notice in this text, from verses 2 to 4, there are 19 negative characteristic descriptions of society and human beings in the last days in which you and I live. 19 of them. Five of them begin with a prefix, phila, which we get Philadelphia from, which means love. And this little phrase, like money lovers, is going to be repeated five times. It brackets all 19 descriptions, some at the beginning and some at the very end. And because here's what he wants you to know. All the things in between these five are characteristics of when you are the center of your world. Right? For men will be, and I'm going to read to you literally, They will be self-lovers. You see that? That is the key description of all the rest. Everything in this list, it all flows out of selfishness, which is a key characteristic of our day. Self-lovers, here's ours. Money lovers, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. I'm reading New King James. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
despisers of good. And let me tell you this, it is exactly what non-good lovers. They're not, they don't love good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, watch. Pleasure lovers, and here's the key, it's a contrast, rather than God lovers. So here's what we ought to be, good lovers and God lovers, but we live in a world surrounded by constantly, all of us, this kind of world, self-lover, money lover, pleasure lovers. That's the world in which you and I live. That's what humanity, we have an epidemic in our day. We live in a culture that is saturated with a disordered love on almost every single level. American culture is a culture of disordered loves and therefore disordered lives. And that's why we don't know what genders are anymore and why homosexual marriage works and abortion is so prevalent. Why? It is all expressions of a disordered love and the disordered lives that follow from it. We are not God lovers in our culture. We are not even good lovers. I say that because of this. Therefore, you and I have an awesome opportunity because every time that we give, we give our tithe, we give faithfully, we give generously, we give sacrificially. You know what it is? Every time, think of it this way. Every time, we don't have offering plates, but every time you put it in the offering, every time you put it in the box, every time you send your mail in the mail, every time you give online, you know what you are doing? You are being a rebel in our culture. You are living counterculturally because our world is about self-lovers and pleasure lovers and money lovers. And every time you give it away, instead of hoarding it or wasting it or selfishly spending it, here's what you are doing. You are countercultural to a money lover society. You are being a God lover and a good lover. And so instead of rebelling against Christ, we rebel against culture when we live and give differently. There are a lot of examples that I could give, and I'll close with tonight, that I could give to you. But John Stott is one of them, and I, picked, I chose him tonight because he was the pastor of All Souls Church in London, England, and he died on July 27, 2011, and I got to win a summer there in one of my college years. I got to go to church there. He wouldn't be a church that you and I would always agree with, but I got to attend services there a few times, and he wrote many books, really good for the most part. A lot of good commentaries. They're still out to this day. He was very, very popular in England. He's very popular around the world. He's sold lots of books to the point where he made millions and millions of dollars in selling those books. Um, But he never kept a dime of it. All the royalties he put into a trust fund that over 10 years after his life is over is still training pastors around the world. I read his biography, and someone who told things about his life that he didn't tell publicly himself when he was alive, that almost all the time he refused to ever have seconds at a meal because he wanted to identify in solidarity with people who had very little. For the longest time, when he was in a church of 2,000 people in All Souls Church, he had one pair of shoes, and he had one suit coat. Until one of his prisoners says, you can't come to church and preach with holes in your shoe and when you have a hole in your jacket. So he decided begrudgingly that he would get a second pair. Minimal amount of clothes, 
lived in London and knew that his house was nice. He actually had a second place outside of London that he went to, but he wouldn't buy a nice place. It was very small and very rustic. He never married. And he would go to this little place to write all the books. And he felt awful because he had more than one place that he lived. And so he would give away even more money. The one thing, which is one of the reasons I loved him, one thing he said, well, I cut back on almost everything in life except I never spared one dime. I would spend as much money as I could on books. I love that guy. But in his biography, they wrote that he asked himself this question all the time, and is what I want to leave you. With, in light of Missions Month and all the projects that we have, and then your regular giving on every week, and the way that you can get involved, he asked these questions I want you to ask yourself with Missions Month on the doorstep. What can I eliminate or limit in my lifestyle that will enable me to invest in God and his people and the mission of the church? He says, and ask yourself this all the time. And he did. John Stott barely had any money left in his bank account when he died in his 80s. He had given it all away. He was not a money lover. Listen, to be a God lover and a good lover, it won't look the same for you and me as it did John Stott. It will look different. When you have a family and children, it will look different. But the questions are still good questions, aren't they? What can I eliminate? What can I limit so that I have money to give toward God, his people, and the mission of his church? Would you think about that? Would you pray about that? Would you answer, God, make me not a money lover, but a good and God lover. Let's pray. Father, help us, because what we talk about tonight is a heart issue. Like the widow who put all that she had in. It wasn't much, but it was everything because it was from her heart. Zacchaeus got saved after a lunch with Jesus, and the first thing it changed was how he viewed his money. Father, we have affluenza in America. We have a lot. We don't have as much as others, but comparatively, we have so much in this place. Help us to ask This week and this month, as we lead into Missions Month, how we can eliminate or limit things in our lives so that we can give toward your causes, your church, your mission, your kingdom. Help us to examine our hearts that we might be God lovers and not money lovers as you deserve. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.